The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Numbers chapter 14. Recall the story from Numbers as God prepared to send his people Israel into the promised land. He commissioned a team of spies to scout out the land and bring back report to Moses. And while in the land of Canaan, they saw that it was a good land filled with resources and yet was also deeply entrenched with pagan peoples. The spies all witnessed the same facts but came back with different interpretations. Two God-centered spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back with confidence that the land was theirs for the taking. The other ten spies were man-centered, insisting that the enemy was too strong for them to overtake. And so the conflicting reports of these two sets of spies led to a crisis as once again Israel's rebels pitted themselves against their God, Maker, and Redeemer. Numbers 14 picks up with the story here as we review Israel's rebellion as well as Moses' intercession on their behalf. And what was at stake at this intercession was not only the witness of God's people to the world, but God's reputation among the nations for his glory and for his people's good. Please follow as I read Numbers 14, verses 1 through 19. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, whether he had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, To stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence, 
and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, and a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your revelation to us to remind us of what's at stake as your people testify to your greatness, your justice and mercy before the nations. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us care about our reputations. Anybody who denies this is only fooling himself or trying to fool you. In this social media age in which we live, people can manufacture their reputations online. Businesses, of course, have a vested interest in preserving a good reputation to attract and retain customers. There are now services that offer reputation repair to doctors, dentists, other kinds of small businesses to repair damaged reputations from an unhappy client. Well, preserving your reputation is a good thing as long as it doesn't become obsessive. And God's people should care to maintain a good reputation to, uh, for other people to influence how people think of the church and our society. But there is a reputation far more important than our own, God's. At this point of crisis in Israel's history, their rebellion in response to the faithless reporting of weak-kneed spies Moses must intercede to plead with God to spare the people the holy judgment of the Almighty. It's at this point that, Christ, that Moses is most Christ-like, taking up the concern in his appeal to God of something far greater than the importance of Israel's reputation or his own reputation, but rather God's reputation among the nations. I believe Moses compels us to uphold God's reputation through his word, deeds, and the cross. After listening to the exaggerated report of the naysayer spies about a land that devours its inhabitants and a land filled with giants, the people of Israel go bananas. Verse 1 says that they wailed and they wept all night. 
They continue the next day sulking and grumbling against Moses. With sarcasm and self-pity, they conclude it would have been better for them to die in Egypt or even die in this wilderness than to go into the promised land and face their enemies. The rabble-rousers among them impugn God's character, questioning why he'd even brought them there only to die by the sword or for their wives and children to be taken captive. Fear is only natural when we feel threatened. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear not, little flock, for you have more precious than the sparrows that fall to the ground, and that not even one hair of our head falls to the ground without our Father's notice. When we fear God rightly, our other fears are put in their proper place. The rebels continue by concluding that it would be better for them to return to Egypt and proceed to nominate a leader. Moses is now confronted with outright rebellion, with a faithless people who refuse to believe God in his word, who can only see the circumstances around them who have so quickly forgotten the mighty acts of God, who had just previously toppled the greatest empire in the world at that time. You know, there are people today who insist that they would believe in God if they saw one of his miracles. The Bible is full of people who saw the mighty acts of God and yet persisted in unbelief. Well, in response to this rebellion, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. They are grieved, and they make an appeal to the people not to rebel. They insist that the land is good and that if God is pleased with them, he will keep his word and bring them into the land of promise safely. But the people feared of being consumed by the Canaanites, not realizing that it was the pagans who had much more to fear, for they were mere bread. Their protection was removed. All their false gods and idols would be helpless to withstand the Lord God Almighty. And yet the people didn't want to hear it. Rather than repent, they take up stones to stone these men into silence. I attended a children's baseball game not too long ago where I observed spectators heckling the umpire, treating this like the National League Championship Series. I challenged these spectators to please stop, and they only returned evil glares and an earful to mind, for me to mind my own business. People don't like being challenged to turn from wrong and do right. Well, in response to this rebellion, a much greater threat looms than the threat of enemy nations. The Lord himself appears at the tent of meeting, inquires to Moses why this people do not believe him after all of the signs that he has given to them. The Lord is prepared to strike down Israel, to start over from scratch and to build up a new nation, a mightier nation, through Moses. I speculate that this might have been a tempting offer to Moses. 
give him an opportunity to get rid of the riffraff, to spare him the ongoing heartache and frustration of leading the very difficult and stubborn people. We too might be tempted to think that the church would be better off with certain kinds of people. God, in his wisdom and patience, bears with the weak and the difficult people for the display of his own power and grace. This, I believe, is Moses' finest hour as he goes into intercession for God's people. Notice that he doesn't defend the people. Their acts and faith of, of faithlessness and rebellion are indefensible. Nor does Moses diminish their guilt. He does not beg and plead with God to go easy on them. Something far more important is at stake here than the mere well-being of Israel. God's honor is on the line. Moses argues that if God wipes out Israel, then the Egyptians will hear of it, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. The Egyptians have been left in shock and awe as God rained down plague after plague, wiping out Egyptian, the Egyptian economy, decimating their population, drowning their chariots and riders and horses in one of the greatest military triumphs of the ancient world. The Canaanites had a lot to fear, as Joshua's spies would find out in the city of Jericho. But Moses makes the appeal in verse 17 when he says, Please, let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised. God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give their descendants this promised land. But if God destroys Israel, which he had every right to do as the just judge of all the earth, Moses argues, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. The nations would conclude that God could not keep his promise. This is a God who does not keep his word. When things get tough and the people get difficult, he goes back on it and destroys them in a whim. Moses holds God to his word. Moses is concerned about God's reputation. That the nations might know that there is a God in Israel who keeps his promises. Do you hold God to his word? Do you know God's word and then do you trust God's word? Life is hard. Bad things happen as we journey on this pilgrim land, in the wilderness, in a very fallen world. There are giants in the land. The giant cancer, depression, job loss, weakness and frailty of many kinds, betrayal of others, lost confidence, we live in a fallen world of scarce resources where our hearts are never fully satisfied. Temptations abound. We hear the voices of false gods promising all kinds of things but failing to deliver. 
believe in the God who keeps his promises to never leave you nor forsake you, to give you your daily bread, to not let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure. And if we believe in a God who keeps his word, we must be a people who keep our word. We live in a non-committal society. People wait to the last minute to commit to something, always looking for a better option to come along. Psalm 15 commends the man who fears the Lord, who swears to his own hurt. Fathers, this Father's Day, we exhort you to keep your word to your wives, to your children. Employers, keep your word to your employees. Employees, keep your word to your employers. May you be known in the community as a person who keeps his or her word. And remember, more than just your own reputation is on the line, but God's reputation among the nations. Well, the God who keeps his word is also the God of justice and mercy, whose deeds testify to his righteous character. You recall the previous crisis with the incident involving the golden calf where God had then threatened to destroy Israel. And there Moses stood in the gap and interceded for his people, arguing to God there as well that the Egyptians would conclude that with evil intent God had brought the people out only to kill them on the mountains. On that occasion, God was gracious to not only pardon their sin of idolatry and rebellion, but also to concede the request of Moses when he asked the Lord, show me your glory. And so hiding himself in the cleft of the rock, Moses heard the words of the Lord as he went by, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Yes, Moses uses God's own testimony in this second appeal for God to pardon his people on the basis of his righteous character. Moses is essentially saying, the whole world needs to know you. Israel deserves to be punished, yes, indeed. And they will be. God will pardon their sin, but sentence the people to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and forbidding that generation from entering the promised land. A band of rebels will go into the, into the land of Canaan prematurely to receive a severe beating because they lack the Lord's protection. But here Moses is insisting that if God destroys his people Israel there in the wilderness... It will deny the nations the opportunity to know the mighty deeds of the Lord, that he is the true God who is just, merciful, and gracious. To find dead Israelites scattered all out the throughout the wilderness, the nations would conclude, oh, 
Well, I guess the God of Israel is just like our gods. He's powerful, but capricious, fickle, thin-skinned, and vindictive. We thought we had seen something new after the Exodus. But I guess we have seen all this before. With a yawn and a sigh, the nations go home in misery to continue serving God's made in man's image. Psalm 96 tells us that the gods of the nations are but mere idols who have no fame worth declaring among the nations. Our God made the heavens, whose glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. John Piper writes, the difference between the true God and the gods of the nations is that the true God carries and the other gods must be carried. God serves. They must be served. God glorifies his might by showing mercy. They glorify theirs by gathering slaves. In the past 200 years, more people have come to faith in Christ than the prior 1,800 years combined. In 1900, one out of every 21 people on earth was a professing believer in Christ. Today, it's one in seven. In 1976, over 17,000 people groups were identified who lacked an effective witness of the gospel. We call these unreached people groups. Through focused energy, strategy, and many thousands responding to the call to spread God's reputation on earth, by 2004, that number had been reduced to 8,000 unreached people groups. That number decreases annually as people leave the comforts of their own homes to make the name of Jesus famous among the nations. Our God is knowable. The one with whom Moses spoke face to face is before this God that Moses seeks pardon, that the nations might know there is a God who forgives sins. You know, the greatest danger to humanity is not climate change. It's not ISIS. It's not North Korea, but the almighty wrath of God. The nations need to know how to flee the coming wrath. The only refuge to the cross of Jesus Christ. Of course, there are some who don't like this message, A nominee to a government post recently, who's a professing Christian, was chastised by a Senate review panel for holding to the Christian teaching that those who don't trust and embrace Christ as Savior will perish in eternity. In the name of religious tolerance, the new universalism is offended at those who hold a position that might exclude others. The problem with universalism is that it denies a God of justice. To deny hell is to dismiss the notion of justice. And there is no consolation for the innocent who suffer at the hands of the wicked. Furthermore, a denial of hell dismisses the notion of pardon, of a God who forgives 
He shows mercy and compassion for sinners who repent and believe. Against a society that's growing in animosity against biblical Orthodox Christianity, we must not back down. But we must uphold God's reputation. We must uphold difficult teachings like the eternity of hell, like God's design for marriage and sexuality and other issues that are under assault in the name of social change. Our session is currently reviewing a paper written by Dr. Rogers that spells out some of the positions we hold from Scripture. I hope you will read it in the months to come when it is released. But even as we uphold unpopular positions in the growing animosity around us, God's people should be the least judgmental people on earth. We should be the least angry people on earth. What in the world do we have to be angry about? We win. We have everything we need. We ought to be the most gracious people on earth, eager to help, eager to serve, to show people the goodness of our Heavenly Father with our families, at work, in our neighborhoods, as we travel, as we shop, as we go about our day, to testify to the greatness and goodness of a God who is worthy of our worship. We are a people of hope who point people to the only hope there is in this life and the life to come. Well, lastly, God's reputation is magnified on earth through the cross. Some skeptics argue that God has an ego problem. The first question of our shorter catechism asks you, what is man's chief end? And the response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Is a God who requires worship and devotion full of himself? Well, our first response to that charge is to point out the simple fact that human beings are worshiping creatures. Humankind is incurably religious. All people worship something, and it'll either be the infinite God who is worthy of our worship, or it'll be far inferior things of earth. But our second response will be to point people to Jesus Christ. Moses, I believe, in our passage here, foreshadows the Lord Jesus as the mediator between God and mankind. In the prior passage of Numbers chapter 12, it says that Moses was the meekest man on earth. But then one came who was meeker and greater than Moses. Jesus had the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A little while later, he tells his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And yet Jesus is not an egomaniac like Hitler, Stalin, and the other tyrants of the 20th century. Rather, he is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
rather than having an ego problem. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and took our place on a Roman cross of condemnation. He put himself in the lowest place, and God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus lived, died, and rose again as a testimony to the nations to secure God's reputation as just and merciful. You see, on the cross, justice and mercy meet. Justice is satisfied as Christ takes the punishment that you and I deserve for sin. And there at the cross, we also receive God's mercy, pardon, sparing us from everlasting punishment. And there we receive grace, granted the gift of eternal life, eternal access into the presence of God. Fathers instruct and discipline their children to not, so as they don't taint their reputations. The boy on the playground that loves his father will defend his father against a classmate who speaks ill of his father's reputation. Well, like Moses, Jesus is consumed with the reputation of his God and Father among the nations. And he invites you and I to bear witness to the good news to a people worshiping false gods, that they might learn there is a God in heaven who is good on his word, who guarantees salvation for everyone who looks to the Son by faith. Next month, people from our church will be going to Yakima Indian Tribe Reservation in Washington to help convince Native Americans that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to the gods their ancestors worshipped. A small team will be going to London to speak with Hindus and Sikhs to help them see that their gods are not worthy of worship and devotion, but there is a creator who has revealed himself in the Bible who is worthy of our worship and devotion. Yet another team will go to a community of Muslims to help them see that Jesus is more than a prophet but the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who forgives sins and gives us the assurance of everlasting salvation. We need more to go. But in this day and age, you need not go far. The nations are coming here. Lancaster County is home to speakers of more than 40 languages. I understand that there are more than 2,000 Arabic speakers right here in Lancaster County. Sadly, 70% of children in this county are unchurched. The need is great. May all that we say and do, may we be done with recognition that our reputation and that the reputation of our great God and Savior is on the line. I urge you to join in this great mission to spread the name and fame of Jesus among the nations around the world and right here in Lancaster. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for making your name known among the nations, for sending your Son to testify to your justice and mercy, your grace and compassion. And we thank you for granting us eternal life 
and commissioning us as your testament, as your witnesses to testify uh, to the greatness of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.